Hello fellow pushers, welcome to Pushing Cardboard. I'm Grant Lindenberg and this is episode 28, Sam London and a trip to Gazala. Sam is, a, uh, Sam is a new designer with a bunch of projects on the go. The most notable is Firefight Tactical, now on the P500 list at GMT. And as for Gazala, well I've, uh, I've been recently playing uh, Gazala the Cauldron from Roger Miller and Revolution Games, and then also Operation Theseus. Gazala 1942 from uh, Dirk Blenheim and, and VUCA Simulations. Two games on the same battle. I'll take a look at how they're similar and how they differ. Lots of great feedback on the David Thompson interview. Thanks for reaching out to all of you. Uh, and thanks to everyone who also commented on my YouTube interview with Volker Runke about his new game, Coast Watchers. Uh, you can find that on, uh, on my YouTube channel. I now have another YouTube interview posted, this one with Mike Ranella. We talk about his design history, his obsession with area movement games, and his new solitaire designs. Uh, as always, I'll have links to both of these things in the show notes and in the newsletter. News. As I mentioned earlier, I did an interview recently with Mike Ranella uh, as part of the uh, San Diego HISCON online conference, and uh, we did a deep dive into his games. I've played at least 10 of his designs and own a couple more that I haven't got to yet. So we talked about all of those as well as his new solo designs on Stalingrad and Manila. Uh, it was all part of uh, San Diego's Hiscon's online convention, uh, which I, I hardly recommend. Uh, if you've never been to an on online convention, um, uh, you, you gotta check it out, it's great. Uh, there's a lot less gameplay than in a regular convention, but there's usually tons of panels on interesting topics, uh, designers demoing new games, and interviews like the one I did with Mike. And they're super cheap to attend. Uh, SD Hiscon was 10 bucks, Armchair Dragoons uh, ACDC convention was 6 bucks, so uh, you can't go wrong. Worthington Games have a new game on Kickstarter, Louisburg 1758. It's blocks and cards and a point-to-point -point map. Looks to be playable in about 90 minutes. Uh, actually, the company is old-school war games, I think, but through Worthington, I, I'm not sure how that works. Maybe maybe old-school war games is a, is a division of Worthington or something. But anyway, um, check the Worthington site, you'll find it there. Uh, Compass has a new Kickstarter as well. This is for Atlantic Sentinels, a solitaire game from uh, Greg Smith, the solitaire master, about escorting convoys in the North Atlantic in the Second World War. I recently heard from a fellow named... Um, Andy Rourke, and uh, he's got a new company in England called Form Square. As you might guess from the name, their first designs are on Napoleonic topics. Bonaparte's Eastern Empire is first up and can be found on GameFound, which is, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, it works a lot like Kickstarter. Uh, it's an area map. The artwork is like a like old, um, like late 19th century cartoons, they're really cool. And uh, apparently it plays in about two hours, so uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this one turns out. I have no idea why GMT let Unhappy King Charles go out of print. Um, it's a terrific game, one of my favorites, and the GMT version had great graphics and components, everything, everything about it was terrific. Anyway, uh, it was uh, out of print and uh, apparently no, no plans to reprint it, so uh, Phalanx has picked it up, and uh, they're taking late pledges still, I think, on their version, so check it out. Um, the new version has totally new graphics that also look amazing, and uh, the word is there's now a solo mode, so uh, that might uh, convince some people to buy it a second time, I don't know. 
Uh, as a follow-up to my conversation with Mike Ronella, I heard that MMP is planning a reprint of his game, Shifting Sands. Uh, it was Mike's first game. As he says in the interview, he was trying to make a game just like Paths of Glory. Well, <laughs> he, he succeeded, and I don't mean that in a mean way at all. Um, I've played Shifting Sands a few times. It's a great game, and it's the only North African game that I own that also includes uh, East Africa, the Near East, and then all the way through that, through the torch landings in Tunisia. So uh, a, a really comprehensive look at uh, the desert in World War II. Did you ever play Ace of Aces back in the day? It's, it was one of the most innovative games ever. It's, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's two little books, one for each player, and each page in the book, and each book is a view from the cockpit of your plane looking at the other plane. Uh, there's a list of uh, possible maneuvers on the bottom of the page with a number below each one, both players uh, pick a maneuver and then tell each other the, their numbers. Then you go to that, your opponent's number page in your book, and you look at your maneuver there, and that'll give you an end page. You both go to the end page, and then you'll see uh, the other plane from your new uh, your new view. Uh, maybe one will be, be firing at the other one or tailing the other one. It's um, it's a really cool way to do uh, simultaneous movement. It's, it's brilliant, really. Anyway, there was... Uh, there's a whole series of books for several types of planes. They had the Rotary series, the uh, Powerhouse series. Uh, some, I think there was a, one on balloon busting and one on maybe early, early war aircraft. Anyway, um, now they're being reprinted, and uh, there's a Kickstarter for a comp, uh, for a campaign to uh, launch the first set, which is the, the Powerhouse series. So uh, I heartily uh, encourage you to check it out. What's on the table this week? Well, I've, uh, I've been playing table battles on uh, Rally the Troops pretty much constantly. It's such a simple game, but there's, uh, there's much more to it than meets the eye, and each scenario plays very differently than the previous one. Uh, I'm really hooked. My game of uh, not war but murder has started back up again after a bit of a hiatus. <laughs> Man, it is hard to get the Union troops across the South Anna River against a good opponent. He's blowing bridges like crazy and fortifying the spots where the bridges are intact, so uh, I'm having a hard time getting over, but uh, I, I persevere. Uh, we've just got through the, the uh, in-between day section of our uh, play of Crossing the Moro, the historical ASL package from Lone Canuck. My Canadians are in fairly good position on day two, but uh, a lot of my best attacks on day one came from my fighter bombers. Uh, you can only buy them twice over the four or five days that the... Um, that the, the, the campaign takes place, so uh, I opted not to buy them this time. Um, I'm going to have to hope that my OBA can take up the slack where my fighter bombers are missing. And uh, our game of uh, Death in the Trenches continues. I think I've mentioned this one before. There's a ton of little things in this game that I, I tend to forget as they're so situation-specific, like every, every little tiny minor power or minor army. But uh, i got to say, it's still a compelling game. Um, it's a bucket of dice combat system, but it's got this mechanic that allows you to push your luck a little bit, but you risk being too greedy and coming up empty. It's uh, it's uh, it's really fun. And then uh, there's a giant whack of random events at the beginning and the end of each season, and those are fantastic as well. Uh, given they'll come out in a different order each time you play, if you really get into this game, it's going to be a, it's going to be a very different experience each time you have a go at it. New games to the collection. Well, uh, I did get a whack of new games uh, this time, but they were mostly uh, mostly used. Noble Knight had a deal on free shipping, so uh, I grabbed some cool stuff from there. I uh, I got the Brothers in War, uh, Brothers at War, 1862 from Compass. 
Uh, it's about the newest of the ones that I got in this sale. Uh, I'd heard good things about it, so uh, so I picked it up. It's got uh, four battles in a single box. Looks to be fairly uh, fairly easy to learn and quick to play, so I look forward to that. Uh, I got a couple of oldies from Avalon Hill. Um, uh, uh, Caesar, Epic Battle of Elysia. Uh, it's a kind of an old player's copy, but I've always wanted to try it. And then uh, the same with uh, Frederick the Great, the campaigns of the Soldier King. Um, I'd, I'd always heard good things about that game, and uh, uh, and I never owned it. And uh, and then uh, the last two were um, one from Colombia, Quebec, 1759, and uh, and then finally the Siege of Jerusalem. Another uh, this was a late game from Avalon Hill. Um, kind of came out in that period, just before they went under. But it, the, this game at the time, it, uh, the topic totally didn't um, interest me at all. I was uh, I just had no interest in ancients at all and and uh, no I don't know the religious angle didn't appeal to me either but uh, this game's got a really great reputation from what I remember so uh, so I picked that one up anyway uh, they're all older games that I missed along the way and uh, I managed to get it at a good price from uh, from Noble Knight uh, I also got a couple of issues of uh, old issues of uh, S&T that I was interested in uh, one has a uh, tank armored combat in the 20th century and then uh, World War One uh, the, so um, that's a, a well-regarded, I think that one's a, a Jim Dunnigan game. Um, and then uh, in terms of stuff that was on order that came in, uh, for ASL, the latest core module arrived, Twilight of the Reich, endgame in the European theater in 1944 to 45. Uh, I gotta say, I'm not... I'm not sure why this is a core module. Is it doesn't introduce any new nationalities. It's uh, just more late war German unit types and a few other things. Lots of scenarios and some good looking boards, I guess. But uh, but I have to say, um, I don't know. This was not a module I really felt good about buying. Do we need more German or American squad types? It feels like we have a million already. Uh, anyway, uh, then I. I I also got a, a couple things from uh, uh, a rare sale at my local game store. My uh, my, my local store is a great, well-stocked store, but it doesn't often uh, put things on clearance. So uh, I got uh, Antietam, uh, 1862 from Worthington. I got Paul Koenig's uh, The Bulge, uh, Six, Pan Six Panzer Army from uh, Victory Points Games. And then uh, this one, it's so funny, uh, Rommel's Panzers from Metagaming. Uh, it's right here. Do uh, you remember these? Very small box, maybe uh, four by six and a half inches uh, and a half an inch thick. Um, sold for five bucks back in the day. Anyway, uh, I never had this particular title, but I had others. And uh, given my recent playing of the Gazala games, I, I couldn't resist this one. No books this week, uh, but uh, I, I wanted to talk about uh, newbie tips. Um, one of the big obstacles for new players can simply be getting started. You buy a new game, you look at the board and the pieces, then you, you look at the rule book and the playbook and the scenario books and whatever other books might be included, and um, it could all be a bit overwhelming. Everybody has their own way of dealing with all that, but uh, I want to share mine with you. Uh, the way I do it is um, I like to just dive in, make mistakes, and then bash through. I'll give a skim of the rule book, reading anything that catches my eye, uh, if the designer has notes on game mechanics, I'll check those out just to see if there's anything really different or uh, just to know something more about the game. I look at the pieces and the player aids. I look at the first few pages of the rules to find out what the ratings on the counters mean. And then I just dive in. I pick an introductory scenario if there is one, and I start setting the game up. Uh, often there's a section of the rules about setup. Uh, 
whether the game has different scenarios or just one setup, there's there's often a setup section, and so uh, I read that little section, and I find that um, just setting out the pieces starts to give you a feel for things, and then I look at the sequence of play. This is uh, this is the main thing. Look at the sequence of the play, both on the player aids and in the rule book. If there is no sequence of play, consider putting everything back in the box and setting it on the curb. But, but um, assuming you found the sequence of play. Just start going through it, step by step. Every time you have to do something, you look up the appropriate rules. Uh, many games set out their rule books in the same order as the sequence of play, so that makes it easy. Um, others put, like, say, the, the movement in one section of the rules, combat in another, supply in another, and so on. But, you know, just read the bits you need to do, the step you're on, and, and, and bash through that little bit. And then, um, most importantly, don't worry about making mistakes. There's no need to go back and redo things or anything like that. You're not playing to see how finely balanced the game is when it's played perfectly. You're just playing to learn it at this point. If you've realized you've made an error, don't don't go back. Just know that the next time through that that part of the sequence won't make you won't make the same mistake again. You'll make a new mistake, and that's good. After bashing through the sequence of play a few times, you'll make less and less mistakes, and and you'll find you've read more and more of the rule book. And when you're done bashing through then it's a good time to read some of the playbook and see if you were doing things correctly and maybe read some sections of the rulebook that you may not have got to in your bash through. And then have another bash. You'll find more rules that you need to look up, but a lot of it will be understood by now. I find this going back and forth between playing and reading really speeds up my learning. I've tried reading a rulebook before playing and it, it just never works for me. I find myself just doing the bash and read method afterwards anyway. So try it out. Let me know if it works for you. Or uh, stop by our website and tell us about your method for learning a new game, if it's different than mine. Okay. Time to talk about games. This month, we're taking a look at two games on the Battle of Gazala. Gazala the Cauldron by Roger Miller and Revolution Games, and Operation Theseus, Gazala 1942 by Dirk Blenderman and VUCA Simulations. The thrilling thing for me about the, the North African campaigns of World War II are the wild swings back and forth. Uh, the Italians initially push east, then the Allies push them back west, all the way to Algilia, and, and uh, they capture Tobruk along the way. Rommel shows up and starts to push back east, but is somewhat hampered by a lack of supplies. So he bypasses Tobruk, pushes halfway to Egypt. Britain adds another corps to the theater, forming the famed Eighth Army, and then pushes the Axis all the way back to El again, relieving the defenders of Tobruk along the way, and then after receiving fresh supplies and reinforcements, the Axis drive back east again, pushing the Allies back to just outside Tobruk near the village of Gazala. And that's where our battle takes place. Uh, spoiler alert, Rommel wins, takes Tobruk, which uh, could now be used as part of the Axis supply line, and then Rommel and uh, the Desert Rats uh, push all the way to, e or so not the Desert Rats, Rommel and the Africa Corps push all the way east uh, to Egypt. But then he gets defeated at El Alamein twice and eventually driven all the way back past Tripoli. And uh, that was kind of uh, the end of the high point for the Africa Corps. Now they'd be driven westward by the 8th Army and then uh, pinched from the west by the American British landings in, landings in uh, Tunisia. And uh, this is off the top of my head, but if I recall correctly, before that sort of pinching happened, uh, Rommel left the theater, so uh, apparently he's not the sort of leader to uh, stick it out with his faithful troops. The games we're looking at today uh, don't have any of that wild swing. They, they, uh, they mark one of the many battles along the way. It was a critical prelude to taking Tobruk, which the Axis needed if they were to have any hopes of pushing into Egypt and staying there. 
It's an interesting battle in many ways. The Allies have a long line of minefields that the Axis must punch a route through to maintain their supply lines. The Allies also have several heavily fortified boxes or uh, defensive positions uh, along those minefields. The Axis have the advantage in armor and overall strength, as makes sense, uh, as the attacking side. Uh, the units are also interesting. This is, a, this is truly a world war battle. There's Italians and Germans on the Axis side, with uh, British, Indian, French, and Australian units on the Allied side. Um, as a side note, in the actual battle, rather than smashing through the, the minefield line, Rommel sent several panzer units to sweep around the southernmost tip of it and then, uh, then head north once they got past it. But those units soon found themselves out of supply and had helped breach the Gazala minefield from the east. So they, they came along the bottom and then had to uh, kind of attack back, uh, back uh, westward in the direction that they came from. The lack of supplies without a breach in the minefields, it's an important consideration that uh, both games must take into account. Operation Theseus is the more detailed of the two games. It plays longer at about 10 hours compared to the Cauldron 6 or 7. The maps for the two games cover roughly the same area uh, east to west and at the southern end, but uh, while the Cauldron's northern edge is uh, just north of the Knightsbridge box feature, uh, Operation Theseus goes all the way to the coast and has uh, Tobruk in the top right corner. It also goes just a little further east, but not much. Uh, the Cauldron has hexes that are a mile across. Theseus, uh, their hexes are a little over two miles across. Um, there's obviously differing opinions on some of the features, as it's, uh, it's 12 hexes from Bir Hakim to Rotunda Ualab on the Cauldron map, and it's uh, 10 on the Theseus map, where you'd think it would be 5. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, somebody's got the distance wrong, but, but who knows, it, it's not going to make a big difference to us. The main thing is the, is the strip of minefields and defenses of boxes along the western side is roughly the same shape on both maps and really dominates that half of the map. Uh, the cauldron is uh, 12 turns long, with each turn representing one to two days between May 27th and June 14th, whereas Theseus is only eight turns, uh, with each turn representing anywhere from one to six days. But in Theseus, uh, units can be activated more than once, so each turn is is really quite long. Um, and, and both games represent, of course, the, the same uh, three weeks of time. In the Cauldron, the units are brigades, with the addition of a few Italian regiments. Uh, it's not precisely stated in Theseus, but as the HQs are divisions, it seems uh, possible that the subunits are uh, are probably brigades with perhaps a few smaller anti-tank units uh, added in. Uh, the units don't precisely match up from game to game. Some do, some don't. Um, uh, the divisions in, call, in the Cauldron have a few more units than in Theseus, but Theseus has more independent units, so um, perhaps it all evens out a bit. The Theseus counters are, are very colorful and appealing, but uh, man, there's a ton of info on each one. Uh, Theseus uses drawings for the army units and symbols for the infantry and recon units, though they're not exactly NATO symbols, so they, um, they're not always the clearest to me. I, I mean, I, I got the hang of them after a bit. Uh, the cauldron uses less colorful counters, still col still colorful, but not. Uh, they're only two or three color, not the multicolor that that um, uh, Theseus has. Uh, but uh, the cauldron uses all NATO symbols, and uh, both both games use a, a system of color coding to make it clear which uh, which um, brigade or which division each brigade or which which unit belongs to. All all the divisions have their own colors. Both games use an activation system that sees one division at a time activated and used. 
The cauldron uses a traditional chip pull mechanic with a few twists. Um, there's a, a, a turn track that lists which divisions chits go in the cup on any given turn. Um, all the axis chits are double-sided, meaning you have to decide which division to activate when one of those chit is pulled. Uh, interestingly though, uh, on some turns there may be multiple copies of a single chit in the cup, meaning that you can activate a division more than once. And, and finally, uh, also on the turn track, is a number of activations, uh, the, the number of activations both sides get each turn. So, uh, so even though you may have seven chits in the cup, you may only get five activations that turn. Uh, as well, each side has a handful of special events or uh, capability chits in the cup. These might give you a little extra movement or a, a dice, die roll modifier or something like that. They don't count against your uh, activation total. Uh, once each side has completed all their activations, the turn is over regardless of whether there are more events or unit chits left in the draw cup. So in a 12-turn game, each division might get activated once or twice per turn. Um, there's obviously a, a bit of randomness and a bit of player choice as to which uh, units see more action. Theseus has a, a much more involved activation system. There's no chip draw, rather when you have initiative, you get to choose which formation to activate. Each activation starts with a, an initiative roll to see who gets to go. If I get the initiative this time, next initiative roll, you'll get a plus two DRM to, the, to your die roll for the next initiative try. If I should happen to get the initiative again, then you'll get another plus two DRM, making it four DRM. So, so it's easy to, to get back-to-back -back activations, but it, it's less uh, likely that you're going to get three or more in a row. Um, when it's your turn to activate, activate a division, there's a fair bit to look at. Uh, you get to choose which one, um, but uh, each division has its own track that lists how many activations it gets each turn. The top limit is five or six for the allied units, so five or seven for the Axis units, with a few exceptions for the smaller units. Each time you activate a division, you move uh, its marker down one. Uh, in between turns, the markers all move back up and you get to the full use again, but, but not all the way. Each division is also rated for how many activations it recovers each turn, so some units uh, recover much less than others and are therefore much less active than, than others and you have to be careful uh, uh, how you spend their, uh, their less frequent activations. Anyway, uh, back to activating a unit. Um, <laughs> I did say it was a more involved process. You have to look at what the activation number was when you chose this unit, and you roll a die, you check a chart, and that will tell you how many activation points or uh, action points that the unit will get this turn. Interestingly, when a unit is fresh and has many activations left, it's easy to roll and get, and get seven action points, but the lower your unit is on its own activation track, the more likely you're going to roll for much fewer activations, you know, maybe just three or four. It, it sounds confusing, but it, it's really straightforward once you do it. These uh, activation points can then be spent on moving, combat, refit, and a, a couple other things. More on those later, after finishing how the uh, activation works. One really special feature of Theseus is uh, there's a degree of interactivity uh, if, uh, if you've got an active vision and you move a unit or, or a stack of units adjacent to one of my units or, or attempt to move a, move a unit or stack of units away from being adjacent to one of my units, I can get a reaction activation opportunity after a roll versus a rating on my unit's HQ. But if successful, I roll on a special column on that activation chart and I'll get between 
one to four activation points to uh, to counterattack or move away or or whatever with. I, I get sort of like a little mini activation. Of course, this will count as an activation for my unit, and its marker will go to one down on its track, leaving me with one less full activation possible for that unit. So, it, you know, it's a trade-off. The Allies have uh, seven divisions. The Axis have eight plus some smaller units. Each of these divisions will have multiple activations per turn. You can see then that each turn is a very long affair, with the early part of the turn featuring units with a ton of activation points and slowly moving to the end of the turn where each uh, unit has fewer uh, APs to use. Even though it's only uh, eight turn long compared to Cauldron's 12, Theseus is rated to take 12 hours, whereas a Cauldron can be done in six or seven. So uh, now we get to the meat of the action. Uh, what happens when a division is activated? Both games combine combat as a part of movement in a similar way that it, 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 uh, it costs either movement points or activation points to initiate combat. And uh, the more movement points or action points you spend, the stronger your attack. Uh, in the cauldron, the movement point allowances for each unit are larger. Uh, the time scale is a little bit different. Uh, I guess it makes sense because there's going to be they're going to be activated far fewer times than in Theseus. Uh, both games have a, a typical train effects chart with costs and modifiers for movement and combat. Pretty standard stuff. Uh, in the cauldron, the pieces have a fresh side and a spent side with reduced ratings on the spent side. When a division is activated, all its pieces are flipped to the fresh side and you get to use each one. You move up to the limit of its movement allowance, uh, but you can also stop at any time and also pay uh, movement points to attack. The movement point costs depend on the unit, but it's uh, it's roughly a, a third of its movement allowance for a light attack, two-thirds for a medium attack, and almost all for a heavy attack, which sort of simulates a, a set-piece battle, I guess. You'll then get a, a minus two DRM for your combat roll if you do a light attack, and a plus two DRM for your combat roll if you do a heavy attack. So uh, after, uh, after the unit attacks, as long as it wasn't forced to retreat or anything, and if it still has movement points left over, it can continue moving and, and maybe even attack again, depending on uh, how, how many movement points it has left. When a unit attacks in a cauldron, uh, it's, interestingly, it's a little different. It's, um, it's more the way... Um, you've seen this in kind of some uh, old-school games. A unit's got to attack all the enemy units that it's adjacent to. Um, any friendly units adjacent to any of those attacked units, though, can also be attacked. And crucially, there are no mandatory attacks. So you can move a few units into attacking position adjacent, where they'll be uh, flipped to their spent sides, and then you move in your final attacking unit, which will attack from its fresh side. Uh, that way you get to add up all the attacking factors versus all the defending uh, uh, factors, and uh, you get a good old-fashioned odds ratio for a roll on the CRT. Um, there's also DRMs for the severity of the attack, as mentioned earlier, the, the, the hasty attack, the medium attack, or the, uh, the prepared attack, as well as DRMs for uh, terrain, supply, and disruption. You'll roll and generate effects on either the attacker or defender, or sometimes both. Uh, the results are, are step losses, retreats, or disruptions. Uh, in the cauldron, about um, half the units are single step, but the maximum loss on any attack on the CRT is two steps, so it's not as bloody as you might expect. Uh, you can only lose those uh, a maximum of two steps if things go really badly. And then if you have uh, more units still waiting to be used, you can now move, uh, move on and uh, set up another battle 
or you can move a new unit into an open space that allows it to attack the same units that were just attacked and and if they're adjacent to those same friendly units that attacked before they can throw their uh, their factors in as support as well so you can see in the cauldron how sequencing your attacks is part of the fun of the game and, and really part of the strategy as well. In Theseus, uh, attacks are more straightforward in the old, uh, this is uh, one hex for another versus another hex uh, at heart. Um, you remember how we generated the action points when we activated formation? Those action points can now be spent uh, to use the, the formation's units. And the key rule here is that action points or activation points are, are spent on a hex, not per unit. So it costs the same amount of uh, APs to activate a stack of three units to move as it costs to activate a single unit in a hex to move. Uh, this generates a fair bit of decision-making on whether to stack or spread out. The defending allies would like to spread out a bit to cover more ground, but they generally have fewer action points, so the stacking makes sense to uh, get everybody in the action. The Axis needs to stack while on the move or every unit won't get moved. There's a similar set of three attack strengths in Theseus as well. It costs a stack one action point to make a hastier light attack, two APs to make a regular attack, and three APs to make a prepared attack. Rather than generating DRMs though, these determine which column we'll use later as part of the attack process. Movement allowances are shorter in Theseus, but the units will get more of them so it evens out. Attacks are a complicated process, and I'm not sure I'm going to do it justice by explaining it, but um, here goes. Uh, say I have one unit or stack adjacent to you, and I declare an attack. It starts out as a hasty attack. You have the option as defender to attempt to retreat before combat by making a, a die roll, but uh, if you're unsuccessful, I'll get a good dice roll modifier later in the process. Um, if you don't retreat or can't retreat, at this point I can then spend more action points to turn my hasty attack into a regular or prepared attack. And then now we'd really get into the weeds. In addition to a combat results table and DRMs, Theseus also has a cup of combat chits with a little grid on both sides. The rows equate to each unit's effectiveness rating. Each uh, counter has this on its front, along with the many other ratings on these counters. Uh, it's each unit's rated 1 to 6 for effectiveness. Then the rows depend on whether you are the attacker or defender. For the attacker, the rows represent hasty, regular, and prepared attacks, whereas for the defender, they represent whether the unit is disrupted, uh, just in its regular state, or in a friendly minefield or improved defensive box. For each attacking unit, you cross-index the unit's effectiveness rating with the kind of attack it is, and you'll get a number between 1 and 3. And this number is the multiplier of that unit's attack value. Um, so you have to do that for each attacking unit. So you, you're going to uh, multiply each unit's... Um, whatever the, Each unit might have a, a, a different uh, multiplier, depending if they have uh, different um, effectiveness ratings. Uh, they'll all have the same... they'll all be making the same type of attack, but they might have uh, different uh, effectiveness ratings. Anyway, um, you get these multipliers, you multiply it out, you add all three... all, all your units' uh, totals together, and you'll... 
that's uh, that's going to give you a, a, a giant number for your uh, attack value. And then for each defending unit, a similar thing happens. You cross-index each defensive, defending unit's effectiveness rating with its state, whether it's uh, disrupted, regular, or improved defense. And you'll, again, get a multiplier for its defense strength. And you add up all the multiplied attack strengths for a total attack. Do the same for all the uh, multiplied defense strengths to get a total defense. And we finally have our initial combat odds ratio. Um, this, the combat results table here is uh, interesting as the column you end up on depends upon the defending terrain. Uh, I guess it's pretty much like having a column shift for terrain types, but it's just handled differently. The, there's a, a, a shifting set of uh, numbers for each, each uh, terrain type. And then um, there's a bunch of other little DRMs. You get uh, DRMs for, if, uh, for each side that has its uh, headquarters unit in range. Uh, the Axis will get a DRM uh, if they've got air power activated and, and uh, uh, available. Uh, each side could get a DRM for combined arms, if applicable. And uh, importantly, uh, while this is just one hex against another hex, uh, any friendly, rating, uh, friendly units that are adjacent to the combat hex uh, for both sides, you'll get a DRM, each side will get a DRM for that. Oh, and then there's also a shift for uh, who has the most armor or uh, uh, anti-tank points in the combat, uh, which is um, um, just more ratings on the counters. Anyway, you, you finally, uh, you, you, figure out, you figure out which column you're on, you've got your final DRM, you roll, and you get a result that says how many hits the attacker takes and how many hits the defender takes. And um, this is where the dreaded hit point chits come in. Uh, I'm, I'm no fan of these hit point chits. Uh, in the, in this game, uh, the, the units the unit strengths can be can go can be anywhere from like four to sixteen sort of. So um, there's these uh, these strength chits that are they're they're just chits that uh, they'll have like one two three four around the each around the, the four sides on the one side and then uh, five six seven eight on the, the, the other side. Then there'll be other chits that have seven eight nine ten on one side at eleven twelve fifty four or, or, or the, uh, uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, you, you see what I mean. Anyway, um, if I have a unit, say that uh, it's, it started with a, a strength of 12 and it takes two hits, then I need to put a strength chip underneath it that uh, with a 10 facing up. So uh, to indicate how many, uh, how many hits it actually has now, it doesn't have its uh, stated 12. Um, in this game, uh, Theseus, it's uh, it's not long before most of the units have a strength chip beneath them, um, uh, which makes for you know just uh, higher stacks and more fiddliness. There is an alternative way you can play where you record um, strengths on a side record, but uh, either way, it, it's fairly fiddly. Okay, <laughs> I know that sounded like a lot, and it is, but uh, I, I have to say it, it's not so bad once you've been through it a few times. The hardest part for me was keeping uh, keeping track of the products of the multiplication in my head. Uh, uh, you know, all those as I had to add them up and then remember all the ones for the attacker as I worked through what the defenders was. I, I should have just written them down, but um, anyway. Oh, I, I should say, um, as, well as, uh, as well as hits, uh, units uh, may also have to take an effectiveness check as a result of that, uh, whatever's rolled on the uh, CRT. And uh, any units that fail, they're flipped to their disrupted side. And uh, disruption in this game means that a unit can no longer move or attack. 
disruption ends automatically at the end of the turn, but uh, you know in this game the, there's a lot of activations per turn, so that can put a, a unit out of uh, out of commission for a long time. So um, there's another way you can uh, remove the disruption marker. Um, you can spend that when the when that uh, division when it's when a unit a disrupted unit's division is activated. Uh, you can spend uh, an activation point on it to, to do a refit action, uh, which involves rolling against uh, one of its ratings. Maybe it's a, maybe its effectiveness rating, and uh, and recovering it that way. It's not it's not a sure thing, but if if you got a, a key unit that's uh, disrupted, it's a way to get it back in action and not have to wait for the end of the turn. Okay, <laughs> that was a long and painful explanation. Uh, but I, I think you can see the big differences in combat in particular between these two games. In, in the Cauldron, losses are not quite as common, but uh, when you do lose, uh, you lose either a, a whole unit or a half unit uh, if the unit had two steps. Uh, whereas in Theseus, there's, there's losses in every combat, but they degrade units much more slowly. Another key feature in games about Gazala are the minefields and defensive boxes and uh, how they interact with supply and victory conditions. In both games, there's there's a long string of mines and proof positions running from uh, the top near the west edge almost all the way down to the bottom of the map, ending at Bir Hakim. Uh, there's just one or two hexes below this on both maps. Um, in the actual battle, it was critical critical for the Axis to find a way through the minefields and open a route east along one of the roads through those minefields to keep the supply line open. In fact, uh, several German units swept down around the bottom of Birakem, uh, but then had to back, back westerly to help open the breach as they had put themselves kind of far out of supply. Both games make you open a breach through the minefields in their own way. Uh, in Theseus, the supply rules are a fair bit more detailed, as you might, exp uh, <laughs> as you might have uh, imagined, and, and you simply can't trace supply around the bottom of Birakem and keep it open. Uh, um, Armored units might stay in supply for a bit, but leg units just won't even get around there. So, um, so it's it's built right into the supply uh, rules uh, in the, in Theseus that you have to get through there. In the Cauldron, uh, on the other hand, there's just a rule that says the Axis has to have a breach route through the minefields and be able to trace a simple line of communications from the west edge board through the breach into that center area to at least eight. Uh, uh, eight axis units on the far side of the line, or they're going to lose automatically, and uh, th that's by uh, they have to have it done by um, May 29th, which in that game is uh, turn three. Um, in both games, there's a variety of victory point hexes to be fought over on the east side of the line. So uh, you know, once uh, if uh, given that both the, that the axis does get through, uh, then it's uh, then it's a battle for all those uh, victory spots. There's a few other differences, uh, of course, but it's that's that's the basic difference in broad strokes. Um, generally, it's a it's a case of Theseus being a little more detailed and fiddly. Um, they both have special rules for how you breach those minefields, um, uh, and they both handle supply in their own way. But uh, you know, you, I, I think you can sort of uh, see where this is all going. So. Um, <laughs> I imagine you're expecting me to pick one or the other by now, but I have to say it's not an easy choice. Theseus is certainly more fiddly. Um, it's got a super-involved combat system that has a ton of detail in it. I'm, I'm not totally sold that all that fiddliness and detail is worth it. Um, and, uh, and I do really hate having strength markers uh, under every unit. But uh, that said, uh, I've got to admit, it allows for a much finer degree of planning and management uh, um, than the cauldron. 
The cauldron, uh, it's a, a little more chaotic due to its random chip draws for activations and much less fine-grained in how it handles losses. But I like that chaos and uh, and you know uh, if you played Cells, which is uh, the previous game in, in this uh, little series that uh, Roger Miller's done uh, for um, for Revolution Games, uh, I, I like the Cauldron even more than I like Cells. So that tells you how much I like the Cauldron. Anyway, uh, I suppose uh, if pressed, I'd I just narrowly pick the Cauldron to play. Theseus is much more attractive in terms of its components, but the the fiddliness factor is large. But uh, you know. That said, it really is a toss-up. I'm, I'm definitely going to be playing both of them again, as they're both perfect for a long day or over a weekend. Okay, time to hear from Sam London. Sam is uh, new to tabletop wargame design, but not new to gaming, as he worked in the video game industry for years. So um, how great is it to find someone who specifically prefers to design board wargames rather than video games? Here's our conversation. There we go. All right, I'm uh, I'm here at uh, SD Hiscon with Sam London, uh, designer with a game coming up on uh, with, through GMT. Is it on the five? Uh, hello, Sam. How are you? Hello. <laughs> Hi. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> is it on the P500 already? Or it how, is. How we, ju we just hit 400 today. Oh, uh, so it's, it's going to make it no problem. I'm. Thank you. I'm. It's. I'm pretty happy with the momentum we've had. Uh, it's only been up on P500 for about six weeks. And uh, Firefight Tactical is that? Yeah. That's the name of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Is this your first design? I've just played the demo with yeah. you, so I'm I, like I'm feeling pretty jazzed about the game. But oh, we'll get to that. Good time to record it then. Yeah. Um. So I've been designing games for 20 years but I've been very down on myself about like, oh, who would actually want to play this stuff? And it was actually Firefight Tactical was the first thing I pitched to anybody. And I pitched it to uh, Gene, GMT, and he pretty much took it on the spot. Right, yeah. And so... He's, um, he spoke really highly of it in yeah. in his, uh, no, his newsletter. Yeah, which was, you know, I was kind of in shock. <laughs> I, I've been doing this for so long and wasn't thinking anybody would ever like any of the stupid things I write down. But then um, all of a sudden I had this, oh, you know, maybe maybe some people would like this stuff. And so I started to try to sell around some of my other designs, and, and people have been picking those up too. So <laughs> Right. So I, I noticed you have more than um, more than one design here on uh, the, that you're demoing. You've got like three games that you're demoing. Or... I actually have five. But oh, is that right? But only two of them. <laughs> or two of them I, I, I have no – I'm not in an effort to sell right now. Right. Um, there's – well, actually, there is, but one of them I'm selling to another company, which I haven't contacted yet, and then um, the other one I'm, I'm kind of tooling with. But I'm, I'm at any given time, I'm working on quite a number of games. So that so you've been designing for twenty years, and it's taking you that long to feel like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch this thing. I'm gonna and it's like well, obviously you got twenty years of experience, so it makes your first pitch go pretty well with GMT. It also helps that I. I mean, it was the video games industry, but I've been on the creative and the business side of the video games industry, and so there's a lot of analogs there with you know analog gaming. So right. you know, it, it and nothing is, shocks me. Is that still your um, your day job? Uh, no, uh, no, no. I I left that several years ago for something with a little bit more um, uh, reliability. You know, the development cycle in the video game industry can be pretty punishing. Yeah. So I yeah. went into general tech, so I could stop getting laid off every two years and. Yeah, let have, my let my wife sleep a little bit better at night. Have a life, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hear you. That's all. That's good. But you, you've taken a lot. You said that you learned from that development 
being on the development side of software that's applicable to what they might be looking for when you're trying to pitch a game? Is that that? You... Well, I mean, it's it, first off, just the general flow of development, the development process. I'm familiar with it. It's right. more similar than it's different between the two. And then on the other side, just having to um, uh, communicate creative ideas with a mind towards the market and how you're going to appeal to people, it's all the same. And was that the side of the like the video game industry you were working on, the creative, the creative side? or the? So I was a producer for some time, but my, my primary career and still is now is essentially consulting around big data. And so it was just looking at, you know, financial metrics and product metrics and saying, hey, this is where we should reinvest and this isn't working out and how are we going to actually measure all that? And right. so, it, and if we don't fix this, you're going to lay me off. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it it, 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 it it translated quite well to getting into this. And it was actually, um, I, told, I told them after the fact, it worked out, with, and specifically with Firefight Tactical, I designed it for GMT. I didn't design it thinking, oh, we'll see if somebody buys right, it. Right, right. I specifically designed it for GMT thinking, I hope it would do really cool things for expanding their market. And I was like, I, I want this to be something that's a little bit of an olive branch between the tactical gamers and the general war gamers, but even the Euro crowd a little bit. Right, um, because this game, for people who haven't seen it, there's no board. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's similar to an older game like Upfront or something in that the... In the, the you make the map as you go with uh, terrain cards or what have you. So it, it, it's got some, when you look at it on the table, it, it doesn't look, it in no way looks like a traditional hex encounter game or anything like that. It, it's going to have some, and also there's a ton of dice. Not, it's not a dice chucker. It's a, it's, it's a dice, dice, drafter. dice yeah, dice drafter. Uh, so it's going to have some visual appeal to the Euro gamers who are, are going to be familiar with dice drafting and, and they're not going to be scared away by a big map board that, uh, of, you know, Sicily or whatever. Right, right. I mean, I've been, I've been a big war game fan for years, but, um, like I said, with designing games all this time, I always want to design a war game, but I never had any inspiration to design a war game. And then it just suddenly hit me. And I was like, I said, I was like, I think this would be great for GMT, where they are as a business. I think it would be really cool. And so, as I alluded to earlier, I told them after the fact, I was like, yeah, if you didn't buy it, I was going to throw it in the bin. <laughs> and it was, uh, they just ended up, you know, getting really excited about it. And now all of a sudden, I'm having war game design ideas as much as I'm having non war game design ideas. <laughs> so, given the fact that they published uh, uh, Combat Commander, which was. Uh, like, like there's there's a million World War II tactical games out there, and and I own them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> a, a, but there's always this feeling like, oh, everything's been done in that space. Yeah. And then Chad Jensen does mm-hmm. uh, Combat Commander, and uh, and then uh, Last Hundred Yards is mm-hmm. kind of different. It's like, and those are both GMT. So in some ways, GMT was like they're the people who go like, oh, this is new, and yeah. like they they were the right people to to approach and the right people to design for. Which is why, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's going to sound like I'm sucking up, but I do intend to also work with other companies, but um, they're just such a pleasure to work with. And they really, they, they see, they see the hobby very similarly to how I see the hobby speaking generally. And so it's, it's just a pleasure to work with them because, um, you know, when I'm Hey, this is really strange, but I think people will dig it. And they're like, yeah, I think it, <laughs> as opposed to this is unfamiliar 
this isn't really what we do and pumping the brakes they don't do that and i, I love that i think uh given the fact that they're sort of like the big player in the industry they're surprisingly open they're, they're not stodgy in any way no. they're and they've got lots of young people working for them and there's they're totally open to new ideas and and i think you'd have a hard time a harder time selling an old-fashioned game to them that's been done a, t- a ton. Which, I mean, again, kind of going back to my background, it's really refreshing because I worked for big-name companies like Electronic Arts and the video games industry, and if it's not something that's tried and true, they won't make it right. because it's too much of a risk. Um, it's just really wonderful that that's not a thing, at least yeah. not a GMT. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. So um, w- you say you played uh, like a million, a million tactical games before you know designing your own what were what were your favorite tactical games what was the what were the things that you went i can't like i gotta steal a bit from this or not even that just like what are your what were your favorites to play um so i always will have a safe spot in my heart for asl i own way too much asl i'm with you um yeah i actually i actually have had two complete well not complete two very large collections of asl i sold the first one and then i rebought all (laughs) i'm on my second yeah i'm with Uh, you um i love asl i always i always considered asl like tactical world war ii chess and it was yeah there's there's luck in it but you have so much understanding of what's going on it's not a simulation i'm not one of those guys but I have so much fun with it, and so you probably noticed a fair amount of the guts of Firefight Tactical is back to old squad leader stuff. In a, in a like, not in a slavish recreation way, yeah, yeah. but just sort of like the core engine. The, but we're gonna have we're gonna have these squads. We're yeah. gonna have these leaders. Yeah. We're gonna have these support weapons. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> uh, stone buildings are a plus three to Yeah, right, it's like exactly. all this stuff is totally yeah. familiar. Um, so ASL is a big one for me. Combat Commander, huge. Combat Commander is tremendous. I mean, I, I I will explain this to you now. I didn't explain it to you in, in, at the table, but um, I absolutely adore Combat Commander for the exact opposite of the reason I just said I love ASL, because they do different things for me. I love that I don't have complete control over the situation in Combat Commander. Same here. Um, I, I love that I'm being faced with a an actually difficult decision. What's the best I can make of the situation I'm in? And obviously, that is the chief thing that in, inspires the core engine of Firefight Tactical. Um, I love Band of Brothers because Band of Brothers, when I'm playing it, I have um, I have to make realistic choices because the system is set up to punish you mercilessly if you are not using some semblance of real tactics while you're trying to address the situation. And I love, and I'm going to throw it out here just to throw a redheaded stepchild in the mix, I love uh, Heroes of Normandy. I was, I was really uh, disappointed to hear that uh, Flying Pig just went under. That, um, yeah, the, there's a big mess right there, yeah, right? Or yeah. Devil Pig, Devil Pig. So, yeah. But um, but yeah, I love Heroes of Normandy because it's so bombastic and it just tells awesome stories on the table. Yeah, it's like I, I think of ASL as a great storyteller, mm-hmm. and it feels like uh, Heroes of Normandy went. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's the part of ASL I like. Let's make let's yeah. make every scenario like a movie, and yeah. and its table presence is incredible. And so um, those are probably the big four for me. Yeah. I also like Conflict to Heroes would be another one I enjoy. Um, yeah, those those are probably the those favorites. are those are good choices. I, pl- yeah. I like all of those. <laughs> so uh, let's spin over to uh, what else you're demoing at the I've only seen your your I one can, game I'm only at liberty to speak about one of them okay okay <laughs> um, 
Uh, so um, the next game, I'm I mean I'm at, I'm working on all of these at the same time. Yeah. And the game I'm pitching to GMT in the spring, which I'm really excited about. That my only tease I'll say for that is it has an unlimited player count. <laughs> but um, I'm really excited for everything I'm working on. The next thing I, I actually can talk about is um, called Absolfmal Allegiance. It's a World War Two. That's uh, World War II. I'm saying World War II all day. It's an American Revolution um, strategic level war game. Um, that's the fr- I'm in time hoping, assuming it goes over well. It's going over well here. Yeah. Um, uh, the first in a series I'm calling the Will to Fight system. And so the Will to Fight system uh, is a trick-taking game. So you have these unique decks to the different sides, and each card in the deck is unique, and they're playing a trick-taking game that decides the actions they're able to carry out, and the initiative of the war is being handled by who's winning the tricks. And so we're, we're doing the, the it's strategic level, so we're doing the complete American uh, Revolution. Yeah, and you a, also have economic factors, something you have to worry about. Right, which is yeah. like, you know, the, there's been a lot of discussion online and elsewhere these days about when we get to, when we get to strategic level, let's, let's have some economic factors, let's have political factors, let's have social factors yeah. like let's get it all in there yeah. right and so the game is quite it's i wouldn't say it's extremely it is quite asymmetrical um and so it's really a an interesting fast playing amrev game um and the 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 core notion by besides the trick taking is revolves around this track called the will to fight track that's the name of the system and there are things that are constantly diminishing the respective sides willingness to continue the war and it's very different for the two of them. So for the colonials, they're actually the people's willingness to continue to fight for independence. In the case of Britain, they never had support of the people. So it's not so much that. It's Parliament's willingness to continue to fund the conflict. And so the things that trigger them to tick down is totally different. And eventually, because they're on the same track, they'll converge. And once their willingness to fight converges, that's how you end up with the side suing for peace and then you do final scoring. Right. And right. so it's a very... Um, so with two tracks converging, you're obviously... Each side is wanting to push yeah. farther into the other side's yeah. half or whatever. Well, actually, they're trying to pull. That's right. the opposite. They're trying oh, to pull the other they're, side they're, closer into their right. neighborhood. They're, they're trying to not go up the track as fast as the other, yeah. the other person. And so it's a um, it's a cool thing. I'm really liking it. And I've uh, without going into it, it's, it's going over well enough that I already have some other designers that are saying like, we want to do the next game in this system. Are oh, you open cool. to it? And I, I would love to uh, endeavor to take a poll jet of uh, Volko Ronka's book and, and yeah. do a, you know, Discord and just say, yeah, just do everybody, it. yeah, let's have fun. Yeah, yeah. that <laughs> that whole um, design design studio or design atelier via. Uh, uh, Discord, I think that's the way of the future for, yeah. uh, you know... It's like, really inspiring. It's Well, it's just great, you know, like, the openness, and yeah. the, there's no fear of, oh, somebody's going to steal my idea. Yeah. It, it's just, just like, let's put all the good ideas on the on the table and make something out of it. Yeah, so. I do. There, there are two conflicts I won't name now, one in particular, that I want to do later in the system. Um, I This is kind of proving out that the system works the way I want to, and that people, there's interest for it. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, there are there is one in particular conflict. I won't let anybody else beat me <laughs> right, to. You, but you, the rest, everybody go nuts. <laughs> right, you, you you know. But you you can stake that ground out from the yeah. from the get go. Yeah. Uh, and you have a publisher for that one already. Um, 
GMT is GMT also going to do, you do, can that, do one. that one. So you, that's why you can talk about that. Yeah, one, that's why I, I can talk about yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. The other ones I can't talk about. They are also picked up, but I can't go into detail. About yeah, them. totally, totally fine. Well, okay, so that's that's all we can talk about about your new games. Let's talk about your. Um, what else are you doing while you're at the convention? Like, are you spending your whole time? I'm pretty much demoing. You're demoing. You're not getting a chance to play any um, play anybody else's stuff, or? Well, I'm really lucky. So I actually host a uh, board game convention at my house twice a year, and uh, three days of gaming, pretty you know, maybe five hours to sleep, and um, that convention wrapped a week ago. <laughs> so I'm I'm not hurting for for playtime right now. Right, um, and you're still still a pretty active gamer then. I try. It's, right. it's hard. I got a four-month-old right now and a six-year-old. The, the form, you know, it's it's yeah, it's harder than it used to be. But, yeah, totally. Um, it's like I've always said. Well, like you get this, this, the second child isn't like just adding a plus one. It's like yeah. somehow it's like two times two, and yeah. it's just it's <laughs> it's a it's a thing. But at the same time, it's um, obviously that's great. But it's I'm starting to hit that point when my six-year-old is like really excited that daddy designs board games. And that gives me, like, so much more oomph to, because now I can get him to, he can't play any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's, like, kind of getting to that point where he's, like, aspiring to play these kind of games with me is do so th- much gas to Do you <laughs> think that's going to inspire you to uh, make some, like, entry-level games that you, just because you go, if I make this game, I can play with my, my son and... I'm not. I don't, I'm one of these. I have, I have no idea how other designers do what they do. Um, the way I do things is I'm driving, and then all of a sudden my muse speaks to me, and I'm just like, "Oh, let me think about that for six months. Maybe there's a game there." Right. You know, um, I have no control, real honestly, about what I end up designing. It's just I either have the thought or I don't. And so I haven't had the inspiration to do any entry level games, but if they're there, I'll I'll do it. Right. Well, the thing about entry level games too is, or not so much about the games, but uh, trying to do that for your kids is. Your kids quite quickly. Uh, I guess how to say this is, an, uh, I got a twenty-one-year-old son. They go through that entry-level phase really fast, yeah. and they spend the whole rest of their life being appreciating your more sophisticated designs. Have you ever um, uh, heard of Cora Quest? It was a recent game. It was on Kickstarter. I forget the guy's name, but it was a very independent game that came out of the UK, and the guy designed it with in concert with his daughter. And so it was very geared towards young dungeon crawl, right. you know, players. And um, I bought it to play with my son, and it's been like eight months, and I'm afraid he's already aged <laughs> out of it before yeah, I got yeah, to the right. table. It's a, and so, yeah, yeah I totally like, hear you. They age out of games the same, the same way they age out of shoes, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, well, um, you, you're, you're, you've got these two games with GMT that are on the track. you got three others that are... Um, can't, can't comment. Can't, can't comment, but they're <laughs> out there. Uh-huh. You, I mean, you're obviously really busy with the designs you uh, already are working on. Do you, like, what's the future going to look like for you? Um, this isn't going to show up on the recording, but I can show you later. I am ruled by this Gantt chart I have of all my designs, and there's too many. And so... Um, I got to be careful with what I say because some of the ones I would talk about, I probably am going to try to sell to this crowd. But um, they just—I hit a point, and there's a problem, and I say, "Why? How am I going to solve this?" And then I don't think about it for eight months, nine months, and then all of a sudden, it just hits me. And I'm like, "That's how I fix it," and then I'm back on um, it. Right, and right. So, um, so you, so it's like a 
like you got a bunch of balls in the air and some of them are really high and then yeah. they come back down later and you go ah yeah and so um i have a lot of things that i can return to at various times right now i have um people i am working with for enough games that that should alone keep me busy right but this this one i i teased that i'm gonna pitch to gmt in the spring i'll make time for that <laughs> right, right, <laughs> but the right. uh the other ones you know when it when it hits me that's time to go back i'll go back to it well and you said you you know when the views hits you it hits you so yeah. you're if you get yet another idea that you got to get started, it's, I just, hope not. it's just going to happen. I, I, need a, I, need a, I need time to work on the ones I got. I also have a day job. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it, I, I have to say I've talked to quite a few designers, and there's quite a few that work like you work, where it's like an explosion of uh, activity on a certain design until they hit a roadblock, and then it just gets... Well, there's nothing for it. I mean, you, you have so yeah. many times where... But then it, when the solution hits out of the blue, that's the that's the fun part. Yeah, I spoke to um, a friend of mine who's a painter, and um, he was. We were, we were talking about the times in his career where he's worked on commission, and he said it's horrible because you have moments where you're just not feeling it, but you got to do it anyway. Yeah. And I'm so glad I don't have to do that. If I, if I force the design because I had to get it to a certain place in a certain period of time, it's probably not going to be the best version of that game it can be. Right. You know, it's better to wait for when it's like, that's, that's it. That's the way it's supposed to be. And then I, I can't remember to... who I was talking to and they said that was the reason they, the, they'd been, they'd been approached to design some for magazine games mm-hmm. and they went, I, I can't do it because, uh, like, the magazine timeline is unforgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I had a game that that was perfect for a magazine, I would give it to them, and then they could figure out where to put it right. in the timeline. But if they said, we want you to do a game for our November issue, it was yeah. like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah gonna... I, can't, I can't even imagine. I mean, um, Firefight Tactical, I was at the point where I was ready to pitch it, uh, after about five months of development, and, and and they took it, but then it was after that they okay great let's excited let's let's talk about all this other stuff. Um, systems wise, I was good to go. I hit writer's block. They don't know this, but I hit writer's block on the scenarios for like five months. I could not come up with a thought, and it was it was horrific. I was starting to actually get worried. Like, when are they going to ask for more scenarios? I'm not ready to show them anything. And then one day, four scenarios like that. Right, and it was. It was just there. How many scenarios are going to come with it? Uh, Twelve. Twelve. Well, here's the other question that always goes with uh, tactical games. is like, if this takes off and hits as we hope it will, then do we get to see uh, a Soviet box? Do we get to see a box of, well, Commonwealth? So... They haven't told me I can't say any of this, and I think I'm fine because it all depends on how well the game sells anyway. Right, yeah. But, um, so the core box, as uh, it was originally my plan, I want to have a random scenario generator in it. And it's extremely robust, and I am over the moon happy with it. Um, but the problem was it was going to double the number of components because I want to be able to create mega scenarios. Right. And so um, they pumped the brakes on me, rightfully so. And so getting into, okay, what's going to fit into the box? It's like, we got the core experience and we got the bot, right? So we can do the solo and that's, we're good. Yeah. And then um, I said, okay, well, if we're, depending on well it sells, that next thing that's going to come in, it's going to be the random scenario generator, an expansion for the bot, 
and multiplayer roles, and we're good. And then I can I can fire that off tomorrow right, if I had right, to. Yeah, yeah. But then um, beyond that, I already have the Soviets entirely designed. Um, I'm pretty happy with them. Um, and so, yeah, I was going to do an Eastern Front scenario, and the idea there was I was going to come with the Winter Terrain deck. Right. And right. then I wanted to do, like, a Ziploc expansion that would give you scenarios so you could take that Winter Terrain deck back to your core game and do your Winter War right. Battle do you, Bulge. And do all. your Bulge and whatnot, yeah. yeah. And then, but yeah, I mean, again, depending on how well it goes, I want to do North Africa, I want to do the Pacific, and I've had some people coming up to me about it that are really excited about taking it to some other places maybe doing other conflicts well just um, think of think about doing like uh italy or somewhere where you get the brits and the canadians in there okay. so that uh all us commonwealth people get that's our a, get our guys that's i i have that all of this is written down places <laughs> you know it's a, there's no um no one has to twist my arm to make games you know right, it's, yeah, it's yeah, a question yeah. of whether the, the the desire is there and so uh, the, uh, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for that. The random <laughs> scenario generator. Were you uh, inspired uh, to go along that direction from the the one in uh, Combat Commander? Was that? Uh... Um, I was inspired. They're nothing alike. Right. Um, but but I did. It was already a design goal of the game, which we discussed before the recording. That I wanted to have it where the game has a much higher replayability factor than tactical games usually do. Right. And so that's already there just from the random setup of the board. But I wanted to go turn it up to 11 and just have it like, okay, let's sit down. We've played these scenarios a hundred times. Let's just have an entirely random scenario with a random order of battle and just see what happens. Right. And so... And just have a filter to make it yeah. uh, approximately... Balance yeah. as much as you can in, in a random and scenario. It, it, it came out really great. And so what I decided I'm going to do, despite the fact that I can't fit the components for it in the core box, is I'm going to put the logic for it in the core box so that people can make their own scenarios with the components that are there right. and have them be balanced. And it's so easy to put together a random scenario right. for the game. Um, so they could just do that and then save it for the expansion to be able to do your giant maps that are like a river, you know, running through and, you know, going into the hills on the other side, all the, you know, these mega scenarios that I'm really excited about. Um, we can, we can wait till then. <laughs> well, it, it also, you know, when you're talking about replayability, it, um, you know, I think about a game, another card game similar to, the, to yours, like Upfront, mm -hmm. and that scenario A, the, you know, meeting of patrols, sure. has been played a million times and it's different every time. Absolutely. Because in the same, the same as you, like, the terrain cards are random and where they come up is going to change the game immensely every time you play it. Yeah. And yours is the same way. Uh, uh, like the, we played a demo today where uh, I think the grid was like, uh, like maybe five by five or five by four, five by four. Yeah. It was the Cherbourg. Is that the, are they all five by four or is no, the no, grids no. are different? They're different. different so for, the, the, yeah. um, that was a bit smaller than the Karen Tan scenario. The Karen Tan one is, really odd because what i what i did with the carantan one is it's actually there's two different terrain decks and so you have a, a rural terrain deck for the approach and then you have the urban terrain deck for the city for the city right and so um it's a much longer it's a wider scenario um the quicker ones and this will go in also for the uh, scenario design notes for when you want to make your own custom scenarios four by four is like the smaller ones the four by four scenarios you usually um Apparently, I was really happy to hear this, but Jason Carr and his wife have been playing uh, the first scenario, Firefight Tactical, uh, 
few times, and they they're getting through their games in a half hour. Right. And so um, I was really happy to hear that. But um, on the complete opposite side of it, yeah, there's the sky's the limit. But in, in my mind, it's probably somewhere in the order of about like six by eight is probably your mega right. scenario. Right. Yeah. Well, the one we played today was a fairly meaty scenario, but we got through it in probably just an hour, hour and a quarter, something yeah. like that. I, yeah. And you know, it, it it was fully immersive. It was like it it didn't feel well. It didn't feel like a training scenario in any way. Well, it wasn't. That's scenario <laughs> seven. So it yeah, be. yeah, no, it, it was deep in there. But but it didn't feel like uh, you know in an, a game that lasted uh, an hour to an hour and a half. It didn't feel like there was a lack of choices or a lack of depth there. It, yeah. it felt like you know you were deep in like in ASL or Upfront or yeah. uh, or Combat Commander, any of your favorites. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's great to hear. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 I wanted it to be, and I'm, hopefully you can appreciate this from the, the time you've had with it. Um, I really wanted it to get to the point where that first game that you have of it, you're playing your tactical, right? And you're, you know, you're, you're making your maneuvers and everything. But once you play it more, you start to see this die is extremely important to my opponent. I'm going to take it, even though I'm going to do nothing important with it, just to, to steal the momentum. Uh, um, <laughs> I kept feeling that in our game, because I kept feeling like you were taking the die that I wanted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's a big part of it. And it was actually, I didn't call this out for you then. Um, if you actually look, that what, regardless of what nation you're actually talking about, the Axis forces and the Allied forces, their dice menus are inverted very intentionally and so as you're taking aggressive actions with whoever you are you're limiting the mobility of your opponent so the more you're aggressing upon them the harder time they have getting it together to move and similarly the more you're moving the harder time they have consolidating fire to meaningfully lay it down and so i put that in there intentionally so even in the beginning when people don't know how to hate draft and know what they got to pull they're still limiting each other's options without even without doing it right yeah. just by just by doing the right thing you're, yeah. you're yeah. and and that's fairly. That's going to be fairly easy to go forward with the other nationalities because you just yeah you just keep them in line. just keep them in the keep them in a line yeah uh, do will the when you, you know you say you have the Russians completely designed how how the, the the little menu you have for each unit of what they can do based on which dice uh, they they get to choose how different is like a, a Russian line infantry unit from an American line in terms of what they can do like. What's the national? What's the kind of the nationality tweaks you get to do? So, I intentionally left the Germans and the Americans relatively similar. If you put the if you put the same like a recon squad against a recon squad, you'll see kind of where I was going with it. It'll be because ultimately the knobs I call them knobs, and when I'm in my when I'm explaining right. how I design the knobs are the stats themselves. Um, so maybe one has slightly better morale, maybe one has slightly better firepower um, or range or whatever. But the bigger knob is the dice. Yeah. Because then the dice is, the more restrictive the dice are, the harder they are to command. And so that's where a lot of the back and forth is between the Americans and the Germans. For the Soviets, the wheels come off the train. Because I'm like, all right, we've done the core box. This is the engine without doing anything crazy. Let's get nuts. And so um, for the Soviets, uh, this is going to be early war Soviets. So they're poor quality there's a lot of them. Yep. Their morale is trash, but there are way more leaders. They're lower quality leaders, but they're everywhere. And so them holding the line and keeping the fight going is going to be 
it's it's definitely going to feel very different as the Germans going against the Soviets than against the Americans. And, and do, you, do you envision it as a full box that comes with Russians and Germans, or do you? It's just the Russians, and then you use the Germans from the original core box. So that's something I'm not clear on yet. I I'm inclined to do um, as a pure expansion and give get into a little bit more esoteric unit types with the Germans and then use that to kind of backfeed, get excitement, say, all right, now we have excuse to do an expansion that let's get esoteric with the Americans. Uh, you're, you're talking my language. I was hoping you were going to say that. I, I like it when I like it when you have the core and then you just build in one yeah. nationality after another and like you say, maybe add a few extra units for the yeah. nationalities that you already have. Yeah, that's, I, I don't, I don't, that's amazing. I don't need redundant Germans. I want to get into... Let's have some yeah, a little bit more obscure weaponry. Let's get in more types of vehicles, more armor, and also like who needs to go like well these were the these were the 1941 Germans and but then these were the late summer 41 yeah. Germans. Yeah. It's like no no let's just have no. the Germans and yeah you know, and like, I want to I want to so from a design uh, perspective so all every unit every infantry unit in the game yeah it can fire it can move and it can take cover. And then it has two other actions that are unique to it. Right, and so right. those two actions are where all their flavor comes in. And so I really want to have some more fun and let's bring in some more unique actions, some more unique unit types. And just especially then you take that because that's the other part again is I have that, that to me, I, I always wanted Firefight Tactical in the end to uh, be like a, uh, a, a tactical toolbox. And so you got all this cool stuff. Great. And this was, this is this isn't a spoiler, but this is part of the random scenario generator is every single release is here's the new tables for the random scenario generator. You got new toys, let's throw let's it do, into the yeah, box yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and more more to mix it up. I, I I totally agree with your philosophy there. I've one of the things that's always kept me as attracted to ASL because I'm I'm like you I'm a I'm a junkie for that. Um, is that they went nationality by nationality by nationality, yeah. and they. Like I get, as much as I like other tactical systems, I'm, and I play them and I like them, but it's like I I don't appreciate them when they go. This tactical system is based on the 29th Infantry Division or whatever, or the Gross Gross Deutschland Division. It's like no, give me all the German. Like let like let's keep it wide open. Give yeah. me give me all the U.S. Let's you know the, don't uh, don't limit me to the actions of one division when you're making your scenarios and and let's think way way wider that's actually i've only had this conversation once so far i anticipate it's going to happen more is that um i'm checking certain boxes with my scenarios so far and so we have colville's probably the least of them but you got your carrington you got your saint mary gleese you got your saint Lowe, you got your eindhoven you know this is this is all going to be in there um until like okay yeah well you're hitting the cliche stuff where's where's the the nitty-gritty so i'm like if you, if you want to do these smaller unit actions or all whatever you want to do, you have the system. Yeah, yeah. Make it, please, and then share it. Like let's <laughs> totally. And if you have, and if you know, you're going to start with uh, U.S. Germany as the first two nations. And if the something you want from the Italian campaign isn't there, you can design your own. Well, scenario. that's all. That's all. That that'll be that'll be step two. <laughs> assuming again, assuming it sells well, people are eating up the Soviets. That's that's where we're going. Is 
gonna we're gonna hit up North Africa and Italy. I figure I'll do it as one expansion, uh, just Mediterranean uh, expansion. Good, because then you can put the British in there yep. and the, no, I mean, and the Canadians. The and... Could even maybe do it. Might do it as a that could be a second core box actually. Right. So then they'll be all new. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm talking to somebody who's like a, a candy seller or something. Here, <laughs> yeah, just, no, it's, you're speaking my language. I get, to, I get too, uh, I get, I, I get excited about all this stuff. I love talking about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm all, all good. Well, I, I, you know, I, I, is there anything else you want to tell us about uh, what you're up to or these? Um, I really hope that Firefight Tactical doesn't scare people off because it looks so odd. But as I said this to you when we kicked off, it was like, and, and you were picking up on it from the get-go, but um, it was like, everything you're used to is here. You know, it's, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to know what you're doing. If you're a tactical person, because this was, I will say this, I shared this with you earlier. The, um, I designed this specifically to try to get tactical people to have an easier time playing tactical games with non-tactical people and, and still have every bit as much fun doing it. And, um, when people do look at it, I'm concerned they look at it and they think, oh, that looks weird. You know, and I'm like, if you give it a shot, if you sit down and you look at this, it is going to be so familiar. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, going to it, blow your socks it off. It is. It's to- like all the concepts are familiar yeah. for sure. Yeah. Even if you haven't played up front, it's going to still feel totally familiar. Yeah. To, you know, you got you have line of sight, you have mm-hmm. firepower, you've got all the things you're used to. So I hope, I hope, I hope people get excited about it. I am, I am, it seems they are. I hope they keep getting more excited about it because, uh, I mean, it, I, I have somewhat famously said, I was designing games for this long, Firefight Tactical was not my guess of what was going to be the first well, one to get yeah, picked yeah, up. Yeah. It immediately is a very special place in my heart right. because, because I was like, really, one, people yeah. people like the people are excited. Awesome. And so, yeah, if people, people are feeling it. I'll keep making it. Well, um, the other thing I, I should note about, so, you know, you're talking about, I hope people will look at it and don't get put off by how different it looks from other games. Uh, I know, you know, we were playing with your prototype today, so we, you know, there's nothing to do, nothing to do with final art or anything like that. But I have to let you know that the brightness and the clarity of the art is appealing sometimes some of these tactical games, they feel like they need to make it dark and nitty gritty. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 you don't. No, the green is a color. Yellow is a color. Yeah. Everything doesn't have to be gray and black and brown. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. It was actually, this is a, um, I talk about this quite a bit. This is my own failings as a, as a person. I, uh, so again, coming from the video games industry, I have video game and an analog game. I have played more prototypes from people than I can, begin to count and the thing is i am a very apparently a very superficial person and so when they when they put it in front of me and it could be a great game but i have to work mentally to put myself there to say okay if this was fully arted if this had good graphic design not that my graphic design is good but it's there it's you know all these things how would i feel about this as a completed product and i'm so bad at that i have to assume everybody else is as bad as it as i am so uh, whenever I design a game, pretty much no one sees my paper prototype. My wife does. Right. And then as soon as I'm ready to show it to people, I go nuts and do the kind of thing that you saw in there. Yeah. Because it's – and I, I get the feedback that people appreciate it because then they're like, okay, yeah, now I can focus on is it fun? Because that's ultimately what matters. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Um, and I'd, I'd rather I'd rather have that conversation yeah, than yeah, trying than to it. imagine. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at a card that has all the stats put out. Nicely, there's a there's a 
uh, illustration of what the unit is and everything like that, it's so much easier to just be instantly absorbed rather than looking at a card that just has like in you know eight point font the stats. Yeah. yeah. And now you can focus on would you play this? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, it's, now I can imagine it. As well, a and, the, and you can imagine it, and also you can see the things uh, about it that make it sort of compelling. Like if, like the you know the dice trapping that you were talking about, you're looking at the the unit, the little unit cards for each unit, and they have the you know the the dice a uh, little drawing of the the dice menu of what it costs to do which action, and as somebody's coming from you know has never seen it before it's like that's intriguing it's like how's that gonna work how like i gotta roll that to do you know like every time I, somebody walks by they look at the terrain cards they look at the dice but they kind of look at it like oh what's that that's weird and then if they actually look at the counter they do a double take it's like why are there all these dice <laughs> well, and i'm like i got them uh, did, did, did you ever know a game um steampunk rally yeah i love yeah. steampunk rally. yeah that i think that's probably the only dice drafter i've played but like when i saw you i was like oh i get how this is gonna work mm-hmm. this is gonna be great yeah no it's a, yeah it's i when people see that then they're going like okay what is this and then i'm like okay let's it's pitch time and that's that's, that's right that's, that's, that's my that's big, your hook yeah well uh, that all sounds great sam i'm so glad i got a chance to talk to you so glad i got a chance to play that because uh like a you know tactical world war ii tactical world war one in the air those are kind of like my two favorite genres so yeah. uh I, I i can't wait to see how it looks when you know the final art gets done yeah me too <laughs> all right <laughs> but it was a great game yeah i really appreciate you uh your interest and in taking the time oh no problem have a have a good time for the rest of the con- uh, convention yep you too oh thanks okay uh well, uh, I really have to uh, encourage you to check out uh, Sam's game on the GMT website and sign up for the P500. It's, uh, uh, I think it's really going to be worthwhile. It, it's kind of a hard game to describe. It, uh, it looks a little bit like Upfront. Uh, it's uh, a bit like Point Blank from Lock and Load, if you've seen that. But the dice placement in this game is the key. Uh, is the key. It's, uh, it's the engine of the game. So, um, so I guess it's a bit like Table Battles from Hollenspiel in a way, but a fair bit uh, more detailed. I'm really looking forward to it. Parting shots. Well, hats off to the moderators of all the online forums we use as gamers. BGG, Consim World, Facebook, Discord, whatever. Being a moderator is a thankless job, much like being a referee or an umpire. I, uh, I know there's a fair number of folks in our hobby who'd rather live in a world that had no moderation online, no rules, no guardrails. They feel like the participants will sort it out, everybody's an adult, so let the chips fall where they may, right? Um, I'd say that works in real life, but it doesn't seem to be the case online. In the absence of moderation, the most virulent and loudest viewpoint is usually the last one standing. Folks with opposing viewpoints tend to leave because they don't want to argue with someone so impolite and loud, or, or don't want to wrestle with a pig. Or, the, or they do argue, but they never get anywhere. There's no agreement, no consensus, consensus no concessions. The end result is uh, fewer and fewer people attend that particular online space, other than those who agree with the dude who's so rude and shouty in the first place. So, uh, here's to the moderators. May they tolerate everyone except the intolerant. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you like what you hear, drop by the website. I've got a donation link if you're feeling flush, and a ton of content whether you chip in or not. No big deal. I hope to see you there. 
I should also say, uh, particularly for those who are uh, who are listening, uh, I'm trying a new experience with or experiment with this episode, and uh, we're videoing it as well. So uh, I should say thanks for listening or watching or both. Anyway, catch you next time. Thank <music> you.